All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Twimble AI podcast. I am your host, Sam Charrington, and today I am joined by Shreya Rajpal. Shreya is founder and CEO of Guardrails AI. Before we get going, be sure to take a moment to hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening to today's show. Shreya, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me, Sam. Excited to be here. I'm really excited about our conversation as well. We'll be talking about AI safety, among other topics. But before we do that, uh, I'd love to have you share a little bit about your background. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Shreya. I am the founder and CEO of Guardrails AI. The company really started around an open source project that I created called Guardrails. So it focuses on, you know, how do you take this fantastic technology of large language models and make sure that you can like reliably use it in production scenarios. But in the past, I spent about a decade or so in machine learning. I've worked kind of across the stack, starting out doing research, you know, not even deep learning and like classical AI systems, which seems very, a little bit archaic now. Then did a bunch of research in deep learning, spent a number of years in the self-driving space, basically training models and doing machine learning in every part of the stack in self-driving. And then joined an MLOps company called Predibase as their founding engineer, where I led their machine learning infrastructure team. So I've gone the full gamut from research, applied ML, ML infrastructure, and now focusing on uh, safety for AI systems in LLMs. Awesome. I guess we should jump right in and talk about, you know, when you say LLM safety, you know, what are some of the things that you're thinking about? Uh, is it just hallucinations or are there more safety issues that you, know, you and the market are concerned about? Yeah, I think hallucinations are definitely top of mind for everybody. I think they're also like one of the most, uh, one of the most like obvious failure modes of LLMs where you ask it a question and you're like, no, I know the answer to that. And I know that, you know, what you just kind of like printed as confident as you sound is not the right answer. So hallucinations are definitely like top of mind for a lot of people. And as you build applications and then run them at scale, like run them where, you know, you have like a bunch of users using a prototype. So it's not just, you know, like a side project that you build and you're trying out. You truly start seeing some of the scale of like hallucinations and how, you know, the same query, the same data set, source, et cetera, will result in different answers. To some degree, that's barely scratching the surface because a lot of the promise of LLMs, a lot of the, you know, really fascinating, amazing demos that all of us saw end of last year, this year, et cetera. Why they were fascinating is that you kind of see the potential that they have to disrupt traditional work, disrupt like a lot of like add a lot of automation or like human augmentation, et cetera. And, you know, that's where a lot of the promise lies. And we make a lot of assumptions about like how reliable humans are when you give them a certain instruction, right? You're like, hey, don't, uh, you know, if you're working for McDonald's, never ever mention like Burger King, um, you know, McDonald's <laughs> is always like t the top burger chain for you. But if yeah. you want to bring in like an AI model that kind of does that, even like following simple instructions like that might not always be respected, right? Especially as these models are like poked and prodded and deployed at scale, not just individually, but as part of these like larger complex systems. In addition to hallucinations, ensuring that all of these like very domain specific, very industry specific like constraints, which we just expect like humans to kind of just know and get are suddenly assumptions that are not valid anymore for LLMs. Uh, and I think like that is a much more like kind of functional interpretation of AI safety, like within a domain, within an industry, within an application or use case, et cetera. So those are across the gamut of uh, things that we're focusing on, you know, that includes the set of problems as well. And have you come across taxonomization of these kinds of concerns? Do you have a mental model of the different categories of concerns or do they 
all fall under hallucination or how do you think about the different failure modes? Yeah, I think that's a great question, honestly. So hallucination is part of it. In terms of taxonomization, I'm a huge fan of taxonomization. It's how I build you know, mental models about whatever I'm working in. So even within hallucination, there's a taxonomy. Okay. Uh, you know, not all hallucinations are kind of created equal. Some are more harmful than others. And there's ways to kind of, you know, categorize, classify, evaluate them separately. But outside of hallucinations, like there's a lot of risk that gets, you know, exposed to customers or builders when they're working with LLMs. And this might, you know, go anywhere from just like straight up performance risk, where even if the model is not hallucinating, it's just straight up not helpful. You know, it's not able to give you the kinds of like detail or the kinds of questions that you're uh, looking for. Like maybe it's too verbose. Maybe it's too, you know, like terse and doesn't have enough context or the relevant context. Even if it's correct, maybe it's focusing on the wrong section of documents or the wrong section of, you know, like text, et cetera, to generate an answer, right? So one of the risks is just like, straight up like performance or like accuracy would be a very simple way of thinking about it. But there's a lot of other risks as these systems get deployed into real world organizations and real world scenarios. So brand risk is an obvious one, right? Where uh, the model might not be hallucinating, but it might end up saying something that ends up being a brand risk to whichever organization wants to use these LMs or AI models in production, right? Another one might be like compliance risk, right? Or regulatory risk where essentially the model, even if it's factually correct, or, or maybe it may or may not be factually correct, but is doing an action or a behavior that the organization does not have the authorization to do, right? A very, very simple example of that is, um, let's say you're building like a health chatbot whose only purpose is to help you with your billing inquiries. In that case, that chatbot should never, ever give you know, medical advice. You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised by like how easy it is to jailbreak these systems and how easy it is to like get it to give, you know, medical advice when it's actually working in production. So your bill is due in 28 days. But by the way, have you considered this alternative medicine approach? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Especially when, you know, there's like the most common UX for deploying these systems currently is like a chatbot, right? So it's very yeah. conversational. It's very, People you know, there's a chat with it. People want to chat with it. They're like, okay, my bill is due. Oh no, what am I going to do now? And you know, you're like, okay, actually, I can't really tell you. I can only help you with billing inquiries. Um, mm -hmm. So making sure that these systems don't behave in a way where they cause like compliance or regulatory risk for you know their their parent organizations. I think there's a bunch of other kind of like risk factors here that kind of open up. But there's you know, it's broadly this classification of like how even if the model is factually correct or it's hard to evaluate whether it's factually correct in the case of like medical advice, but it just behaves in a manner that opens up a can of worms for, uh, you know, whatever, whoever the organization in charge is. Yeah. And then you said that for even within hallucination, you've got a subcategorization or taxonomization of types of hallucination. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So on the highest level, it depends on the workflow that, you know, somebody has when they're building with LMs. So one of the most common patterns that we've seen, you know, be very widely adopted whenever, you know, for any any application that is being put out into production is retrieval augmented generation or RAG, where um, just on a very high level, retrieval augmented generation is that you have some 
private data source. Let's say if you're internal to the company, like maybe this is your you know, employee handbook or something, and you want to build a system that somebody can come to the system, ask questions in natural language from the handbook and the LLM or the, the application that you're building, like looks at the employee handbook and then responds to questions from that. So that's the high level goal of like retrieval augmented generation, which is you retrieve some relevant documents first. You augment the LLM's knowledge with those retrieved documents. And then using all of this additional context, you generate, you know, some response. So if you're doing retrieval augmented generation, a lot of the assumption that stakeholders have as they're going into this is making sure that only answer from the set of questions that are present in the documents that I give you. Don't use, you know, your world model or, you know, the entire internet that you were trained on to just inject, you know, a few sentences here or there just from your own information. Just stick to what I've provided you, right? So in this case, like one very, very common failure mode is that you build retrieval augmented generation systems. And as the LLM is like generating some text, it will not just look at the documents that you have, but like add, you know, some extra flavor here or there. Maybe that flavor is right. Maybe that flavor is wrong. But the the intention here is just to make sure that you're just not opening up that Pandora's box and you're making sure that only what you know to be the source of truth, which is, you know, your documents are what's what the LLM is using for answering. So that is kind of like closed domain hallucination, right? Another kind of like flip side of this is that you just have a general question answering system. You're not building a RAG system and you maybe have a, uh, you know, a QA bot that is just a companion bot or just a conversational agent, et cetera. In that case, like the model can still hallucinate, but, you know, it's like, it's not constrained to, you know, the domain that you provided it, right? So there's just that top level classification, depending on, you know, are you providing like some source of truth that you want to be respected? Or does it, you know, are you expecting the model to rely on its world model to answer your questions? I think even within that, then you can, you know, specify like, what are the types of hallucinations? So is it messing up, you know, like some specific entities, right? Where the fact is true, but it's just talking about a different entity or it's talking about, you know, instead of like in your employee handbook, you have like, you can only take like 30 leaves and you have to apply for permission from your manager. It's you can only take like 25 leaves and you have to apply for permission from your manager, right? So it's it's messing up like specific entities or specific values in the text, or it is, you know, maybe like completely misrepresenting the meaning or it's adding like ambiguous information, etc. So there you kind of like, can become like way more specific with like what are the you know um yeah what what the specific type of like hallucination represents rag has become very popular as a way to i guess limit the failure surface of llms i think the the existence of closed domain hallucination as a you know one of your subcategories suggests that rag in and of itself is not sufficient to you know solve the problem, but I'm wondering if you can elaborate a little bit on the kinds of experiences that you've seen with folks using RAG and an assessment of the degree to which it solves the problem. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a great question. In terms of the degree to which RAG solves the problem, I would say that without RAG, a lot of the LLM adoption we're seeing today would just not exist. At least a lot of the excitement in enterprises and corporations, et cetera, to, you know, like bring LLMs into the fold and see how they can be used. I would suspect that that would be a lot, a lot more muted if RAG didn't exist. So I don't think right now that there are sufficient 
alternatives to rag outside of fine tuning. And even then you might have like way more of a lift using rag than you would with fine tuning. Even, you know, ignoring the cost of fine tuning, ignoring the effort and ignoring the requirements that you need to have on having a data set that's, you know, curated and actually works, et cetera, that is needed for fine tuning. Ignoring all of that, even if you just did rag versus did fine tuning, you might end up, uh, you know, it's very possible that you're going to end up with like better performance with rag than you would with fine tuning. I don't think we can do away with rag at this point. Mm -hmm. I do think it's a very essential part of the LLM stack. But then even within rag, right? Like I think the most common thing we see is that like, you know, I gave it this text, but it's not respected, right? Like it just added extra context or added extra information that wasn't present in the text that I just don't want it to have. Or it maybe responded with something that I didn't want it to respond to. Or maybe someone asked a question that wasn't actually in the documents at all. So the LM, you know, once it couldn't find like a relevant document or something, just ended up generating information that, again, relying on its world model to, you know, generate some text. So I think it's this kind of constant push and pull between like using how capable and how adaptable these models are but then putting like some constraints on them, right? Like using that capability, but only making it work on your domain, your data, your text, and trying to make it like fight its own capabilities where it wants to rely on like all of this other kind of like knowledge that it's been trained on. So I think that's pretty much like the most common failure mode where you kind of like give it some text, but it'll just add extra context, extra information that ends up being most common. But then you also have like to a lesser degree examples where you give it some context, but it also just straight up like negates it or it like refuses to find, you know, what the relevant piece of information is. So maybe you're like, okay, what is the leave policy? The retrieval part of it might work correctly, but you run this at scale, you'll kind of find that like, okay, what is my leave policy? And you end up like generating a response where even if here's the leave policy is in the text that you give it, it would just end up generating responses of like, oh, sorry, I couldn't find anything about your leave policy. Or maybe like you don't have a leave policy, et cetera. And, you know, just respond with that. So the challenge here ends up becoming that a lot of the excitement in the space, you know, it's because like it triggers the imagination of what's possible with LLMs, right? But the bet that everybody, you know, working in the space is making is that this technology is going to be so powerful that it permeates, you know, every like it, it's going to be everywhere. It's going to be every tech that you use is going to have an assistant and it's going to be on your phone and, you know, maybe it's a companion, maybe it's a sales, you know, assistant, et cetera. But in order to do that, if you think about like, okay, if I was querying a database with SQL, I only expect it to work like maybe I'm pulling a number out of the hat here, but like I only expect it to work like maybe 70% of the time, right? That is not how software works today. You have like expectations yeah. of, you know, reliability. You have some some implicit contract with like software when you use it. But that's not the case with machine learning. And that's not the case with these LMs today. So in order to get to that stage where this technology is adopted and it's everywhere, like we would need to cross that hurdle and make sure that we don't run into these problems. Yeah, one of the interesting things that you've emphasized thus far is the aspect of these problems in which they appear at scale. Like you can build a system, you can interact with it, and everything could be fine. But you know, when you scale it across many requests, if the probability of a, of a failure is small at scale, it's going to manifest 
how can builders like wrap their head around the failure rate essentially of their systems if they they need to scale do we have the tooling to you know is there are there load generation tools or the analog for that for llms like what's the right set of tooling to wrap your head around the the problem i think that's a very very exciting question i think it's a very active area in this space right now which is how do you actually figure out how well these models work or how well this workflow or application works right so we're in this kind of like interesting space where i'm sure you know other guests you've had on the podcast before i mentioned this as well but we're in this interesting point where the ml metrics are actually a little bit behind where the technology is so if you take the classic case of like summarization like the metrics that we use for summarization you know for the longest time aren't usable anymore because, you know, LLMs will do worse on the metrics, but actually would have generated better summaries. And that is also because, you know, there's no one right way to do generation. Uh, Like you can, you know, generate a text in multiple different ways, have like different sentence structures, etc. And all of that would still be a valid generation, right? So how do you kind of capture that? I think in terms of tooling, it's a very, very active space. Like a lot of people in academia, in industry are really looking into, you know, like what the right way to kind of like solve this problem is. And I think one of the most well-adopted ways to solve this problem and to figure out how well evaluation works is to get the LLM to self-evaluate itself, right? So let's say you're using, you know, OpenAI to generate some text from some documents that you gave it. Then you would do a follow-up query where like, oh, actually, given this text and given this response, is this truthful? Is this factual? Am I missing anything? Et cetera, right? So this LLM self-evaluation is like one of the most common patterns right now. And I think it's more because of necessity rather than anything else, because we are at this point in time, I think there aren't as many tools available outside of LLM self-evaluation. But at the same time, you know, personally for me, it makes me very uncomfortable where, you know, if you're using the LMs to self-evaluate itself, like the first question is, okay, like who will guard the guards? Like, (laughs) how do you know the evaluation isn't hallucinated, right? The second is that LLMs have this very, very fascinating, you know, tendency where to some degree, you know, they're like next token predictors. And if you just ask it to, let's say, for example, you know, you ask it to generate like a score between one to five or one to 10, there's a bunch of research where it would be way more likely to generate like, you know, one number, because it's just like, you know, more conditioned to generate that number, right? A much more simpler way of like thinking about this problem is you ask the LLM to generate a random number between one to 10. And you would expect that the distribution looks, you know, uniform where like each number kind of comes up roughly similar number of times, but you end up finding like, I forget what the actual number was in these tests, like three or something like three would just be way more overrepresented. Like, you know, 70% of the, I'm, I'm pulling numbers out of my hat here just to kind of like talk about the problem, but let's say it's something like 70% yeah. of the times you'd get a three and then everything else would be, you know, very low. So using the LMs to evaluate themselves. So rate the factuality of the previously generated response on a scale of one to six, excluding the number three. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It starts to get a little little wonky. (laughs) Yeah, we're kind of in the Wild West, like understanding the capabilities and, you know, controlling and and constraining the capabilities of these things. So it's, it's... pretty fascinating like where we are tech wise i think like other issues are that okay if you ask the llm to you know once again evaluate itself you know compare like one generated text versus another and you're like okay which 
text is better, right? And you're just trying, like, you're just looking for a factual evaluation. You know, they're a little bit narcissistic in that uh, they find their own work way, like, better more often than they find, like, you know, human-generated text. Uh, so they're right. much more likely to rate themselves higher than they are, like, human text, etc. So there's, like, all of these, like, really fun challenges where I, do, like, some of the other, you know, benchmarks that we did internally, you use the LM to evaluate yourself, evaluate itself. You don't change anything. No hyperparameter is changed, zero temperature. And you run this evaluation multiple times and you can get, you know, uh, varying, like it's within some range, but it's it's not a small range. Like it's a, it's a non-trivial, you know, difference in like, let's say accuracy, right? Like you'd get a differently varying accuracy depending on when you run. So I think like, I personally am very, very uncomfortable with like LLMs being evaluated. So in terms of the tooling, I think like people are looking into, you know, how do you kind of like bridge this gap between traditional ML tooling, which was, you know, way more reliable versus something that can accurately evaluate the flexibility of LLMs. And I think as with all ML problems, you know, the first step is really being able to like, curate a data set or have a data set that, you know, has maybe you have like human labelers or human experts kind of look at it that kind of captures these tasks. So it varies from task to task, but that is, you know, where we are kind of like, that's the, that's the lay of the land a little bit. Mm -hmm. And is the data set that you referenced, does that exist or is it, and even can it exist generally or does everyone need to kind of curate their own because the failure modes are so context specific? Yeah, I think it's the latter, unfortunately, where the failure modes are so context specific that, you know, every org, every company, every startup has to kind of like figure out internally what they're kind of building this for. So if you have, let's say, internal company document question answering versus if you have, you know, something that's more customer facing, it's right, you're evaluating for very different things, right? In one, like brand risk becomes like way more important and there aren't any data sets. Like there's no like brand risk data set, right? I think there actually might be now. Uh, recently, like some researchers at Stanford collaborated with like all of these, you know, like other stakeholders and released like legal bench, which is like this very comprehensive benchmark for using LLMs for legal tasks. And it's fascinating piece of work. Would recommend everybody check that out. But then, you know, we're kind of like in the very, very early stages of like looking at, you know, what does taking these things that we just assume humans would do right, which is not give medical advice if you're not authorized to give med medical advice, and then turn those problems into data sets, right? Or don't talk about Burger King if you're at McDonald's, like take those things and turn them into data sets. Um, yeah, but it so kind we're of kind points of to the number of these data sets we'd need, like bank bench, burger bench, like... It's very, very context yeah. specific. Burger bench. I, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing <laughs> that come up, come out out of like a lab, you know, in the next three months. I think another McDonald's AI research. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, I think like an interesting pattern that is very, very recently kind of like emerging. I'm forgetting the name of the open source project, but there's some open source project LM bench maybe that essentially generates you know synthetic data like you give it a one sentence description of the data that it wants and it'll like keep querying etc and then generate a data set of what you want etc so i think like synthetic data can to some degree help alleviate the problem with all of these like lms evaluating themselves you keep getting back to the same original problem which is how can you trust the data set now uh, in the right. first place, right? So I think like the true way of mitigating a lot of these problems is using the LLM 
as this augmentation tool. So you capture what the data set is, you run it, you know, across these different things that you want to test out a few different times, and then still go through this human curation, uh, labeling, et cetera, process to build confidence. Another kind of set of work in this space is taking, uh, this actually used to be research that I did like way back in the day, but taking crowdsourcing principles, right? Which is that when, what, what do you do when you can't trust like one human labeler and then combining them uh, so that you can build confidence in like what the end product is. So taking like those techniques, et cetera, are like some ways to mitigate this. So how does the guardrails project fit into all of this? What are you trying to do with that? Yeah, so guardrails, it actually came up a little bit organically for me, where I was, you know, towards the end of last year, I was making some of my own applications, kind of very excited about the space. Uh, I'd worked in ML for the longest time and including like joining a company because I was like, it's so, so hard to train machine learning models and it shouldn't be this way. There has to be a better way and, you know, focus on that for a while. So having the ease of, oh, I don't actually need to train a model anymore. All of it is behind an API and I can just, you know, like use it and actually unlock the promise of machine learning, you know, and use it for downstream tasks, right? Uh, so I was very excited about this, was building in, uh, building, you know, some of my own applications and then kind of quickly discovered that even as a developer, when I was testing out what I was building, I was like, yeah, okay, this, this works maybe some of the times. And, you know, for a lot of the times, it's not giving me the results that I want. And this is kind of like a fundamental problem with LLMs because they're stochastic, uh, you know, models at the end of the day, right? Yeah. Like you're fitting them into these really complex workflows, but they are like machine learning models and, you know, you can't expect determinism from them. So then the key insight behind guardrails was that, okay, if you can't rely on them, what can you do like surrounding them, right? To make sure that you have like independent checks, independent like tests, et cetera, that run, uh, you know, as a secondary layer on top of the LM outputs to make sure that it actually enforces all of the correctness criteria and all of the quality criteria that you care about. So that was some of the key insight there. So how Guardrails, the open source project works is it essentially has like a catalog of what we call like validators which essentially are, you know, these like independent like checks that you can run on the top of an LLM, which captures like some correctness criteria, right? So for example, making sure that there's no hallucination would be like one criteria. Making sure that there is no like medical advice would be like another criteria. Making sure that you're not mentioning competitors, et cetera, would be another criteria. And then within this criteria, you know, if you have infinite budget, infinite latency, which no one has, you know, are more likely to use one implementation, right? If you have like, if you're much more latency constrained, then you're more likely to use this other uh, implementation. So that's the general principle of guardrails, which is, you know, it's building like the secondary layer surrounding the LM, which, you know, allows you to enforce these criteria. So you can write custom mm -hmm. checks and custom correctness rules, etc. You can run the whole orchestration of like running this very efficiently and like, you know, and handling validation failures very gracefully, where you can like including using the LLMs to give them context about why they were wrong and then using that to basically like get them to self-heal or like correct themselves, right? And then passing that output back through the correctness checks and seeing if you have something that works. So that's what the open source project does. Sounds like it fits right in line with this idea that I have that behind every production NLP system is a strong regex engine. <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's that's exactly right. A lot of this honestly was, uh, you know, motivated by my background in self-driving, 
where mm-hmm. in self-driving you essentially have you know perception systems which are trained on like typically purely deep learning systems trained on yep. a huge amount of data set right and they're trying to figure out like where are the pedestrians around you where are the trucks around you etc but they don't have this implicit understanding of like oh if you're at a crosswalk it's much more likely that you're going to have a pedestrian around you than if you're not so there's no like domain expertise that deep learning models mm-hmm. can uh, learn right because there's no way to kind of like enforce that and yeah. so typically in autonomous driving systems any output that you get from the perception like basically goes through this like secondary layer where all of these things that you know to be true about the world are actually checked and you know verified and validated etc so autonomous driving obviously is a situation where you know you really cannot screw up or you might end up right. like killing someone but uh it's taking that same principle and then making it very generalizable and extensible so yeah like uh, pattern matching rules are one way to do it but can you maybe ground the output in some external system uh that can actually verify it and run it or maybe can you have you know like non deep learning based like very very high precision classifiers which are more interpretable uh that you can use to kind of you know like see if whatever criteria you care about is respected and validated and uh everything mm-hmm. so yeah that's the that's the general principle and to make it more concrete can you give an example of a uh, you know type of system that you've seen it used with and what are the inputs what are the rules what can folks expect from it yeah yeah so i think like a big use case just because this is also where most of the industry is in terms of like what most of the industry is building is chatbots um so yeah. then in chatbots right especially in some domains you can use it to guarantee that all of these like risk criteria that you have are respected uh, are are basically not violated sorry um so for example um we do have some rules in there you know that basically check for hallucination making sure that every sentence or every utterance that the llm generates has some grounding in what the source is to make sure that it doesn't violate any constraints etc if you're building a chatbot then you know adding those like anti hallucination checks is like one way to account for this problem or solve for this problem so we call it like provenance uh, where everything uh-huh. that the llm generates should have some provenance i think like and another so is that like taking every sentence and doing a search and trying to identify the source document for the sentence i think that's the key idea i think in general like we uh you know there's a few different ways to kind of solve this problem and then we kind of provide those as like options in the open source so that is like one way to do this i think another another pretty common use case is around information extraction so if you have an unstructured document something like a pdf and you want to from that document you know extract structured data like maybe a json or maybe like a table or something right and then write that to some database LMs are generally pretty good at this task but they also you know might pick up like information from the wrong context so let's say if you're talking about like an earnings report right and you may you make a reference to like the previous quarter's reports or something so it might you know when you're asking it for i don't know whatever the total revenue was it might pick up the previous year's number as opposed to picking up like this year's number right so all of these things are basically like you can enforce like uh, you know checks of like okay i know that these values should come from here should have like this range etc um as a mm-hmm. way of like uh, you know ensuring the guarantees i think another one that i really like because we did a bunch of benchmarking on this and we found that we were without like with using a fully off the shelf model you know we were like just using our techniques we are like uh, i think close to state of the art in this space uh, i think second or something on the leaderboard like when we last tested this which is uh, generating sql from natural language queries 
So let's say you have a database and a user comes in and has a question of like, okay, how much was it was my spending in the last month or something? That gets converted into a SQL query and you can run that SQL query and you know make sure it works. So then one type of validator we have for this text to SQL use case is essentially grounding any SQL that is generated in this external system of, you know, a database, right? So we create a sandbox of your database. Any SQL that is generated, we run in the sandbox. And it's usually very cheap because the sandbox has very, very little data. And then anytime you run it, you can figure out like where the actual errors are, right? That maybe a SQL parser won't cat. And then you can use that, give it as context, and then, you know, get the LM to correct itself. And we found we find that like this gives like a pretty nice lift on top of, you know, extra existing systems making sure that there's, you know, no risky predicates, et cetera. So no, even if a user wants to delete all of their data, you have like no drop right. tables. No drop ball. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. So these are like some examples of the checks that, you know, the open source has. Mm-hmm. Is it fair to think of this as analogous to like a unit testing framework for LLMs or do you think of those differently? I do think of those differently. I think like unit testing is to some degree. So I think like the main difference is like what you're testing, right? So some mm-hmm. of these for sure might be unit tests, but then for a lot of other things, especially things that use like machine learning in the loop to, you know, like let's say a high precision classifier or let's say establishing mm-hmm. like provenance for, you know, some source, et cetera. There's no like hundred percent right answer, right? Like a unit test, like, like has these implicit assumptions of like guarantees. But that doesn't mm-hmm. exist when you're using an LLM to evaluate itself. What you're to some degree doing is creating like an ensemble model, right? Where the hope is that you have these like overlapping layers where the holes in each layer are mm-hmm. in different locations. And so the idea is that you overlap them and you end up getting something that is way more watertight than just using the LLM by itself. So I think of it like is more similar to like you know, intelligently ensembling these models and creating something like, you know, basically drawing like, I don't want to use the word guardrails too much, but essentially drawing <laughs> yeah. like, drawing like this box around where the LM is, right? Which is like, okay, here's this output, but I want to make sure that, you know, the output like with some likelihood, with some confidence has these, gar- not guarantees exactly, but has has been tested for these things. And these tests mm-hmm. passed like with some with some confidence. So it's that difference in like determinism, which is, assume with unit testing versus, you know, like a belief system, yeah. uh, like uh, a belief value or something that is like maybe more common in machine learning systems. And I guess the implication there is that the, or another difference, like unit testing is kind of a design time thing. It sounds like what you're describing is a runtime thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Like yeah. it's part of the system that you deploy and these, these ensembles are created real time as part of the query path. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, I think the value only exists if, especially where, you know, there's like substantial risk and you're deploying these LLM systems or these AI systems in an industry where your risk tolerance is low, uh, you only get the value out of this, right? If you're like constantly running it, constantly able to monitor, like, okay, which are the requests that tend to violate my guardrails more often than not, et cetera, right? So mm-hmm. I think like that is the that is the general idea. And to what degree are establishing these rules, A, kind of templated and the guardrails has 98% of whatever you want out of the box, you know, fairly static once you're, you've kind of gone through your design phase, you know, versus C, 
like they're constantly, you know, teams with production systems are constantly iterating on them and they're very, very dynamic. You know, where does that tend to fall? Yeah, I think I think that's a great question, honestly. And my slight cop-out answer is that it really depends, uh, <laughs> you know, on the use case. So for example, for SQL, right? Like we've done mm-hmm. a lot of our homework on SQL and then a lot of the, like I would say most of the building blocks that you would need for building like a very, very good, robust text-to-SQL system, like we have. Uh, you know, in the mm-hmm. open source. But SQL is also like a more, it's not a conversational problem, right? Like it's a one shot, like this is what I want, give it to me kind of a problem. Um, when you're in kind of like real conversational systems that have like multiple turns, those problems tend to be like, I guess the surface area of those problems is much broader, much larger. And so there, you know, then you get into this area of like, okay, what is the use case? Uh, what is the exact like domain that you're working with? Are you making like a Slack chatbot for, you know, internal employee questions? Is this going to be like customer facing? What is the industry you're in, et cetera? So I think like that tends to add a lot of complexity to the problem. So some of those use cases, you know, we're um, like making a lot of investments, et cetera. Some of the other ones are, you know, um, users would probably like domain experts and users who are actually building the system tend to have like the best knowledge about like how to enforce those tools. And they're also like very, very specific. So then we provide a general framework for, you know, creating your own custom validators and then running them from from within the orchestration system. Do you find that the guardrails is kind of sufficient to solve these problems for folks? Or is it one piece of the puzzle and there are other pieces that are commonly employed to help, you know, build the entire system? Yeah, I think it depends on like the problem that you're targeting for basically having like more confidence and more kind of like just uh, assurance essentially in the outputs of the LLMs. Like guardrails is the, you know, is the way to kind of make sure that you're getting that reliability, you're getting that confidence, et cetera. But in general, if you care about like AI safety as a whole, right, then there's a lot of like other concerns that you would have as a stakeholder, depending on where once again, which industry you're in, like what your primary concerns are, et cetera. So privacy and data leakage, for example, is a top, top concern that people have. And they want to make sure that if they're using the system constantly, then they're not, you know, sharing data with commercial LLM providers that then gets used to train these models, right? So mm-hmm. a lot of people want to use LLMs, but make sure that none of their data is actually leaking like their cloud or something. So in that case, like, Privately hosted, fine-tuned LLMs are kind of like another safety measure that you can use, right? Okay. I think one more criteria here is like very, very extensive offline evaluation and testing. So guardrails, like you mentioned, and like I talked about, you know, they're kind of like this runtime thing where as you're running this, you can like, you, you figure out for each request, like where your risks are and what is getting violated, et cetera. But then before shipping any workflow into production, like across that entire workflow, figuring out like essentially how does it do on like benchmarks and some evaluation, et cetera. So more techniques that are common in machine learning, right? Creating a data set, running a bunch of tests, like looking into it in a very fine-grained manner, like analyzing where the errors are, making sure that those errors are acceptable to you as a builder before you put it into production. Like I think that is another kind of like essential way. And then outside of that, essentially like documentation of like models, metrics, like the use case that you tested for, et cetera. So those are some of the other kind of like techniques you can use if you're generally talking about AI safety. Okay, awesome. Well, we'll be including a link to the Guardrails open source project and Guardrails, the company in the show notes. Are there any other resources or things that you'd like to point our listeners to? 
Yeah. So basically, there's a Discord associated with the open source project. So check out the Discord, uh, especially if you give, decide to give it a spin. You know, we're pretty active on Discord and on the GitHub uh, with responding to any issue that comes up. Uh, and then, yeah, follow me on Twitter. I tweet about like uh, guardrails and, uh, you know, the open source and generally the space pretty often. So, yeah, uh, I'd recommend that. Awesome. Well, Shreya, thanks so much for joining us and sharing a bit about what you've been working on. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. This is uh, really enjoyed being here. And, uh, you know, it's it absolutely great, like actually chatting with you after like years of listening to you uh, talk <laughs> on the podcast. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much. Yeah, absolutely. I'll see you around, Sam. Thank you. For more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.